0: Hello, and welcome to the Hunting Science Podcast, where we talk about the science of hunting. I'm your host, Mark Lindberg. Our goal for this podcast is to educate listeners about the how and why things work the way they do in hunting in the outdoor world. Well, welcome to today's episode, special episode of the Hunting Science Podcast. I'm going to be talking to Andy Ramey here in a minute, who's an expert on viruses, among other things. Um, and we had planned this, this podcast for some time. I had approached Andy about it you know, in the fall, and we had talked about doing it. And given some of the recent news and, and coronavirus specifically, we thought we would um, move this podcast up and try to release it in a more timely fashion. That said, spoiler alert here, this podcast isn't going to answer your questions about coronavirus. There's other outlets, other resources that do, can do that, and we'll, we'll point you to them. But we do hope to educate you about viruses more generally, and Andy is specifically an expert on avian influenza. And the goal for this podcast, like all other podcasts, is to empower you with knowledge. We want you to have as much information as you can so you can make the decisions that you think are best for you we're not going to make those decisions for you. But hopefully, if you understand why behind a lot of these questions, you'll make more informed decisions. So with that as a background, I want to uh, let Andy have a chance to introduce himself and both tell us a little bit about his science background and his hunting background. And uh, I did have the pleasure of hunting with Andy for the first time this fall um, and uh, hosted him on a hunt Uh, Duck hunt in interior Alaska, and he returned a favor, and we uh, traveled to the Alaska Peninsula and hunted out there, both I would regard as highly successful trips, by the way. But with that, Andy, could you tell us about yourself? Sure. Uh, Thanks for that introduction, Mark.
1: So with regard to my educational background, I have a bachelor's degree from Colorado State University with a double major in wildlife biology and fishery biology. And I also have a Ph.D. in Veterinary and Biomedical Science from the University of Georgia. So professionally speaking, all of my experience has been in Alaska working with wildlife. I spent a couple of years working with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at Togiak National Wildlife Refuge. And I've since spent the last 17 plus years working for the USGS Alaska Science Center, where I currently lead research focused on wildlife health and disease. So as far as my hunting background, I'm an avid waterfowl hunter, as you alluded to. There are a few things
0: that I enjoy more than spending an autumn day in the duck blind with my yellow dog, Chai. Cool. Yeah, and I and, uh, got to hunt with Chai and Andy, as I said, this fall, which was a, a real treat. Um, you said you're a devout waterfowl hunter, I, and I, we didn't actually have this in the script, but it's been in the other ones. What's your favorite hunt? What's your favorite day of field? Could you point to one?
1: Oh, I really like to spend time at Isaac National Wildlife Refuge. That place is close to my heart. And uh, I spent a lot of time out there professionally, uh, not hunting per se, but uh, just observing birds and working out there, and it's really become
0: a very special place to me. Yeah, I understand why. Having visited there, as you know, for the first time in 25 years this past mm-hmm. fall, and it it is it is a special place. If you didn't get that from Andy's background, just fill in the word "super bright guy," um, and you'll you'll describe Andy. And that said. He acknowledges that you're a bit of a, uh, should we call you a virus dweeb? I don't know what to call you. <laughs> and we're, we'll we'll try to make sure we translate some of um, Andy's um, terminology um, to to myself and other lay audiences or listeners uh, as much as we can. So just a little background. Hopefully we'll we'll do that. Um, We're going to do something a little different for this podcast that we haven't done for others. We're going to start it with a quiz, and hopefully through the podcast, we'll answer those questions that are in this quiz, and I suspect that most of you probably won't know the answer to them from the start, so hopefully the podcast is accomplishing that. But the four questions are, what is a virus? What is a zoonotic? do hunters and maybe their dogs have an increased risk of infection over folks that don't interact with animals? And that question's a little bit untimely, I guess, because most hunting seasons are over, fall hunting seasons at least. But nonetheless, I think it's an important one to ask, given the focus of this this podcast. And then finally, as I said with the preamble, we're not going to answer these questions about what you should do for you, but we are gonna point you to a bunch of resources that can help inform beyond this podcast. So the last one is, what resources should hunters reference to be as safe as possible? So keep those questions in mind and hopefully at the end, you'll be able to answer those yourself. Um, So with that, Andy, um, what's a virus? And what does it mean for a virus virus to be a zoonotic? Uh
1: Sure, that's a great place to start, Mark. So a virus is simply a microorganism that replicates in a living cell. So a virus cannot replicate on its own. It needs to infect a host in order to multiply. So there's a tremendous diversity of viruses that infect all types of hosts, including plants, animals, humans, and even bacteria. So the term zoonotic refers to the potential of a virus or parasite or bacteria to spread from animals to humans. There are many well-known examples of zoonotic viruses that listeners may be familiar with. For example, rabies virus is a well-known and very deadly zoonotic pathogen. If untreated, rabies is nearly always fatal in humans. Fortunately, there are effective interventions that can prevent rabies virus infection if medical attention is sought quickly, following human exposure to a rabid animal.
0: A virus, then, is not a living organism, correct?
1: Ugh. That's a uh, pretty <laughs> difficult uh, question to answer, Mark. Uh, that's There's like a, a whole kind of scientific debate on that, I, I suppose. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's a sticky one.
0: So it couldn't exist. Let me state it a different way. It couldn't exist without other organisms.
1: So, yeah, I would say a, a, a virus uh, needs to infect a living host cell in order to replicate. That's, uh, that's kind of the difference. A, okay. a virus can't... Uh, there can't be future generations of viruses without infecting a, a host
0: cell. Okay. And these things persist in other living organisms that they don't kill, and then in the environment, too. Viruses, I'm just amazed. You know I've been in, involved in some of this sampling. These things will live through a, a Fairbanks winter frozen in a lake, right?
1: Uh, They may and then in fact uh, they can kill host cells or hosts and and also stay infective in those cells so the replication and their
0: ability to persist is maybe there's some independence between those two things. Okay that's really cool and so so they're designed, uh, I don't know if that's the right word and you could correct me if I'm wrong, to infect Specific host is that an accurate statement? They're usually the viruses are uh, tend to be very well adapted to their specific hosts, but there's uh, some examples uh, where viruses are able to spread to other hosts and replicate in other hosts. Okay, so let's let's get into more familiar territory then, or real familiar territory for you in terms of avian influenza. We talked about rabies a little bit, and rabies is. The host for rabies is typically non-human, but it can that virus can infect humans as well. Is that an accurate way of thinking about avian avian forms of viruses too? Avian influenza? If my understanding is correct, rabies doesn't need to mutate much or at all viruses to infect humans, but avian influenza does. Is that a is that an accurate way of thinking of that? (laughs) <laughs> it's a little different than that. <laughs> okay. Well, this is why we have yachts. so this is great. Uh, Help me out uh, here. Sure. So avian
1: influenza or bird flu is another zoonotic disease caused by avian origin influenza
0: A viruses. Okay. So there's been
1: numerous outbreaks of avian influenza in China in the past two decades that have resulted in high fatality rates among those infected. In North America, however, there have been very few infections of humans with agent-origin influenza A viruses and no outbreaks with high mortality, such as those that have occurred in China.
0: And why is that, though? Uh,
1: Well, they're they're simply uh, just different
0: viruses. So if I go out and if I'm um, collecting Arctic foxes, which I've done for my work, and Arctic foxes are known to have have uh, rabies virus they've had in the past. I really think about that a lot, because my understanding is that ability for that virus to get to me is is more likely than me handling a duck that's infected with avian bird flu and it getting to me. Is that a reasonable thought process?
1: Uh. Can I try explaining it another way, Mark? Sure. So the, the examples that we talked about, rabies and avian influenza, are examples of uh, viral uh, zoonoses that are almost always transmitted from animals to humans, and that are not typically further spread via human-to-human contact. Okay. So that is, illustrates how we, uh, you ah. had mentioned that viruses may be well adapted to the specific
0: animal hosts in which they're maintained. Yep. However, there are other viral zoonoses that are better adapted to spread among.
1: For example, Ebola virus is maintained in bats, but on occasion it's spilled over into humans leading to outbreaks in Africa. Gotcha. So once Ebola virus infects human hosts, it may be transmitted among people coming into contact with contaminated body fluids. So another example is a recent coronavirus that we've heard quite a bit about. So that coronavirus appears to have originated in China uh, and has now spread globally. So that coronavirus causing the outbreak appears to be the result of a spillover event Isn't entirely clear, but current evidence suggests that it may have originated from either bats or pangolins. So, similar uh, to the previous example of Ebola, uh, this coronavirus has spread via human-to-human transmission following the initial spillover.
0: Event. Okay. Yeah, I so had to part- look up what a pangolin was, by the way. <laughs> it was like, what the heck is that thing? I didn't even know. <laughs> so, just to say
1: that there's maybe uh, a good uh, contrast of uh, a couple different examples. So, like a uh, rabies and even influenza, are typically transmitted only from animal to humans, whereas other viruses are uh, more generalist and may be spread amongst humans once there's an initial spillover event.
0: Okay, that that helps a lot. So let's go to a virus then that hunters specifically are probably more likely to interact with, and that is bird flu, because waterfowl hunters are almost certainly harvesting birds that are infected, right? Yeah, that's true. And so talk about the bird flu virus. This is certainly your your area of expertise and, and tell us how we should interact with that virus as hunters or things we should think about.
1: Sure, so avian influenza uh, is an economically important viral disease that primarily affects domestic poultry but the viruses causing avian influenza are maintained in wild birds. So it's in relatively rare instances that these influenza viruses maintained in wild birds spill over into poultry. So when these wild bird origin influenza viruses infect domestic poultry, they're generally uh, low pathogenic, and they cause very minor and
0: sometimes no signs of disease. And, and the, However, the, the rating of the virus, the, the, the uh, uh, low pathogenic Description is for its effects on poultry, though, not necessarily people, right?
1: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Mark. Okay. So uh, the term low pathogenic
0: is strictly an agricultural term. Okay. So uh, certain strains of avian origin influenza A viruses may develop high pathogenicity
1: in poultry. So okay. these viruses can cause severe disease among uh, domestic birds. Uh, they can cause things like inflammation respiratory issues, neurologic signs, and even death. So just to clarify, so those terms low pathogenic and highly pathogenic are strictly agricultural terms. They have precise technical definitions with regard to their pathogenicity in chickens as determined by a specific test. So those terms have no meaning with regard to zoonotic infections. That is, both low and high pathogenic avian influenza viruses have been associated with infrequent but sometimes very serious disease in humans.
0: Okay. Yeah, I see that. So the pathogenicity has no um, measure of how zoonotic it is, but if it gets into poultry, does that increase the chance that it could get into humans?
1: Most infections of avian influenza in humans are associated with uh, contact with poultry. So there have been very, very few reports of zoonotic infections of avian influenza linked to wild birds. Yeah. So the vast majority of zoonotic avian influenza cases have reported worldwide
0: have been associated with close contact, uh, close contact with poultry. Okay. So, to my knowledge, there have been no reports of avian influenza in humans in North America that have been attributed to contact with wild birds. Okay. So again, the pathogenicity is specific agricultural term relevant to poultry, but by getting into poultry, it in turn increases ex- potential exposure of humans to to uh, to the virus then. Is that is that a, an accurate statement?
1: Uh, sure. There's lots of poultry workers and people handling large numbers of birds and poultry facilities, so there's certainly an exposure risk uh, for those people uh, with regard to avian influenza.
0: Okay. But... I don't need to give this too much thought I guess when I'm out picking up ducks or cleaning ducks relative to avian influenza about because there there's less risk of it jumping from a wild bird to a human than possibly a poultry to human. Is that is that accurate? Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I,
1: I can't quantify risk for you in uh, hunters I can't quantify it for you in and poultry, that's a, that's a tough question.
0: Okay. But we're not currently, no one that I'm aware of is currently recommending that hunters that are picking up ducks, and I'm not trying to put this on you, um, all of the resources we have available to hunters, no one's wearing gloves to do that.
1: I was just stated as, to my knowledge, there's been no reports of avian influenza in humans in North America attributed to contact with wild birds.
0: Okay. So, I thought I read something, and and maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but weren't there some sampling of biologists that worked with waterfowl to see if they had some evidence of exposure to bird flu?
1: There was a study in Alaska where they assessed uh, hunters and biologists for exposure to the highly pathogenic H5N1 virus, which is a virus that circulated in China in the mid-2000s that had a, a very... High fatality rate associated with it, the samples from Alaska all came back as uh, serologically negative to this particular virus. Uh, There has been at least one other study conducted in the lower 48 uh, sampling hunters and I believe that study found very very low levels of exposure of uh, hunters to avian origin influenza viruses.
0: Okay so You've sampled a bunch of waterfowl in Alaska. What kind of rates of exposure do we see in, or of uh, prevalence do we see in Alaska waterfowl? So in autumn, in uh, staging
1: waterfowl, we typically see prevalence rates between uh, 0 and 20%, uh, with 20% being relatively high. So again, these are uh, what are considered uh, low pathogenic viruses in domestic poultry, and, uh, and viruses uh, not associated with human disease.
0: Okay, and these are more common in young waterfowl too, right? Because they're, I've heard it described as their immune system is naive, is that is that true too?
1: That's spot on, Mark. Okay. Yep, but they're, they're much more common in the hatchier birds.
0: But wild birds really aren't affected at any reasonable or meaningful level by this infection. They've co-evolved. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, the infection seems to be subclinical, and what I mean by that is that they don't show any signs of disease. I mean, they seem like perfectly normal, healthy ducks, Uh, but they are certainly infected with the virus, and the virus is uh, being replicated inside the ducks and, and being shed via their feces.
0: Okay. So you've done a lot of this work. What's the most little? What's the most intriguing little factoid that's come out of this that uh, has got your attention about uh, bird flu and and maybe how it does or doesn't relate to hunters? Is there a part of this that you that uh, well, it doesn't keep you up at night, but you pay attention to? Is there a as an aspect of bird flu that you really focus on?
1: Sure. One thing that we've uh, sampled for a lot is movement of viruses. So we've sampled a lot of birds in Western Alaska and have been, actually been able to detect viruses that have been dispersed by wild birds between East Asia and North America. So I think uh, that's really interesting on a, a number of levels. So first, it shows that as birds are moving across the Bering Strait, they're also bringing viral baggage with them. And I think that's pretty cool. Second, it makes me aware that we ought to be paying attention about the avian influenza strains Circulating in East Asia because it's possible that those viruses could actually be transported here to North America via uh, migratory bird movements.
0: Okay, yeah, and obviously we're not going to put on flight restrictions to prevent that from happening like we are <laughs> for some of these other viruses. Yeah, it's the uh, beauty of migration in terms of uh, the bringing those viruses with them. That's pretty fascinating. And you continue to sample at Eisenbeck and elsewhere still or not?
1: Uh, we've been sampling at Isaac for about ten years now, and and the plan is to continue that effort. Currently, we don't have plans to sample elsewhere, but we certainly have sampled elsewhere in Alaska and even places in the lower forty-eight. For instance, for a number of years, we sampled blue-winged teal that are presumably that were presumably migrating from the Neotropics uh, back to the Texas and Louisiana Gulf Coast.
0: Okay, that's pretty cool. So, what's the frontier for for bird flu? What's the what's the what's the next thing there? that you see?
1: Well, there's some interesting viruses circulating right now in Eurasia that are causing outbreaks in domestic poultry. And that's something I think we want to keep our eye on. So these viruses could have major economic impacts to the poultry industry in the United States. So I think, but who's us to keep our finger on the vein, so
0: to speak. Okay. And, um, what a, You mentioned a number of other viruses we've focused in on bird flu, which seems appropriate for this podcast, but are there other zoonotics, maybe not even viruses, that hunters should be educated about?
1: Sure. Well, I mentioned uh, a couple of viruses already, so maybe I'll pick out a parasite and a bacteria that hunters, particularly hunters in Alaska, might keep on their radar. A giardia is a common parasite infecting North American wildlife and it's uh, shed by wildlife uh, via their feces. So that parasite can be contracted by uh, both humans and their hunting dogs through the ingestion of contaminated water. So although Giardia isn't uh, typically life-threatening, the gastrointestinal symptoms uh, associated with that parasitic infection are certainly unpleasant. Another example of uh, bacteria harbored by wildlife uh, here in Alaska would be Francisella tularensis. So Francisella tularensis infects hares and rodents and may cause a serious zoonotic disease called tularemia. So the bacteria causing tularemia can be transmitted from wildlife to humans through the handling of infected animals or from the bite of a tick that fed upon an infected animal. Hmm. Uh, tularemia can have numerous presentations in humans, causing
0: symptoms such as skin ulcers, fever, chills, and exhaustion. Yeah, I've had a few friends that had uh, Giardia. That does not sound like a fun one <laughs> to, to deal with. Um, yeah, so North America-wide, what about some of these um, diseases that are showing up in ungulates especially? Are those hunters need to pay attention to chronic wasting disease, um, for example. Is that something you've been working on at all? I have not been working on chronic wasting disease, but that is certainly...
1: Uh, a big concern in the lower 48 United States. Uh, It hasn't yet been detected here in Alaska. Human infections with chronic wasting disease have not been reported to my knowledge, but uh, humans have been infected with other prion diseases, and so I think there is a lot of concern about chronic wasting disease, and I think people are very much paying attention to the evolving research uh, with regard to that pathogen.
0: Is there any other zoonotics you want to mention, though, or is that, um, is that sort of the the top five or three list for you that you would think about if you were a hunter?
1: Oh, I, I think that's a you know a, a fair slice. Maybe uh, if you have listeners in the the lower forty-eight, maybe I'll mention West Nile virus, and because that's another mm-hmm. uh, zoonotic agent that many people have probably heard of or have familiarity with. Uh, As it's more common in the lower 48 United States, West Nile virus has not been detected uh, here in Alaska, at least not uh, a local uh, acquisition of this virus. So West Nile virus is amplified by infected birds, but actually spread among hosts via mosquitoes. So if a person is bitten by a mosquito that previously fed upon a viremic bird, they're at risk of contracting West Nile fever. And that disease became endemic in the U.S. Uh, following first detection in
0: 1999. Hmm. Yeah, I had a, some involvement with that. I was doing sage work when I was at the University of Montana in the late 1990s, early 2000s, and that was um, infecting sage-grouse. That was interesting. It was it was uh, those mosquitoes had moved into that region of Montana. They weren't there before and then having effects on sagegrass. They um, West Nile affects horses, too, if I remember correctly. It does. That's
1: correct. Huh. Was it uh, killing sage-grouse? I'm curious.
0: Yeah, it was. There's been a whole body of work um, done since my time there, and notably trying to understand the mechanism by which the mosquito first got there and then how it, it started to infect these birds as well. And, um, and like you, I... I I don't recall how risky that is for people, but I do remember getting into some horses in the region as well. But yeah, uh, one that was affecting hunters, I guess, indirectly because there were some bird populations affected by it. Finishing it up here and, and coming back to our quiz questions, a virus is a package of, uh, of uh, RNA that, <laughs> right? that has to have a living host to replicate. Is that a a, a fair way of describing a virus.
1: Uh, there's actually uh, viruses can have RNA, they can have DNA. Uh, there's lots of different types of virus. Okay. Uh, I, w- I would say uh, a virus is simply a microorganism that replicates in a living host cell.
0: Okay. And then it's a zoonotic is a virus or other other. Um, Forms of infection that uh, can transfer from the animal host to a human host, correct?
1: Yep. Zoonotic refers to uh, it can be a virus, a parasite, or a bacteria spread from animals to
0: humans. Okay. And then specifically to hunters and their dogs, I understand you can't quantify risk of infection, but people that handle infected animals regardless of whether hunting or doing other activities, have some higher risk of infection than do people who don't handle those, at least in terms of the virus specifically moving from that animal host to a human. Would that be a fair statement?
1: I'd say handling, cleaning, or butchering of wildlife certainly comes with some level of risk of exposure to zoonotic pathogens.
0: Okay yeah and like I said, I'm trying to generalize too much, I know, but i'm I'm just trying to inform hunters as much as possible and with that said, i as we said from the start, we're not telling you what to do, and however, we can point you to a bunch of resources and and we'll add these to what we call additional resources in the podcast page and what do you think are some reliable um informative resources that people should um, read beyond what we've talked about here today.
1: Sure. I think there's uh, great online resources provided by the Alaska Department of Fish and Game, the USGS National Wildlife Health Center, also the American Veterinary Medical Association. And uh, if listeners go to those online uh, resources, you can find a wealth of information on zoonotic diseases and practical tips for minimizing risk of exposure to viruses, bacteria, and parasites harbored by wildlife.
0: Okay. Now that's really helpful, Andy. Anything else you want to add? Like don't uh, don't pick your nose while hunting, I think, is one thing <laughs> you shouldn't do, right?
1: Uh, no, I mean uh, uh, <laughs> like a, a few of the tips that I gleaned from those uh, specific sites that I mentioned that I found practical and also which I personally practice include things like taking precaution to minimize insect bites. Avoiding the harvest of animals that appear ill or to be acting abnormal. Uh, Not eating or smoking while cleaning or handling game. Uh, Wearing rubber, latex, or nitrile gloves when cleaning game. Thoroughly washing hands with soap and water after handling game. Uh, Thoroughly washing and disinfecting your knives, utensils, and working surfaces uh, after butchering game. Thoroughly cooking meat prior to consuming keeping uncooked wild games separate from your cooked and ready-to-eat foods to avoid contamination, and making sure that your hunting dog is current on their vaccines prior to the hunting
0: season. Okay. That's a great list. Yeah, and some of those things I don't practice, but um, probably we'll start doing so. I heard uh, one story here recently that with increased hand washing in general, uh, we're probably going to lower the risk of the common flu in in the U.S. population just because we'll have more sanitary practices that um, are being motivated by the coronavirus. So it seems like if hunters were doing some basic practices too or increasing their, their use of that, that would reduce risk in that population as well.
1: Oh, I can't tell you how many times a day I wash my hands, Mark, and I think that's just one of the most practical, simple ways to uh, prevent infection. For sure, it's not going to
0: prevent 100% of infections, but it, it's just one of the, the simplest things one can do to protect themselves. Okay. Wash your hand. I hear there's some memes coming out to try to motivate this. I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not that original, um, but one of the very basic messages we had in another podcast was report your bans, and I guess we can leave this one with, wash your hands so um that seems like a good mantra to uh remind your fellow hunters about
1: good good that's a good one
0: okay well thanks andy that i think this is great again we hope from this that you understand why you may or may not be concerned about uh, a particular zoonotic or specific virus and you are educated a little bit more about um the decisions you make and um wish you luck in the field and and be safe. Thanks Andy. Thank you Mark. You've been listening to the Hunting Science Podcast. To find show notes on this episode and to leave comments and continue the conversation, visit our website at community.uif.edu slash hunting science.